0: Almost everything we do now takes place in cyberspace. Things we buy, what we watch, from banking to traveling, we are connected wherever we go in the world. And as that network of linked technologies expands, our reliance has grown on what's become known as the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things, in the broadest sense, encompasses everything connected to the Internet but increasingly it defines objects that talk to each other. But this is just the beginning of a so-called smarter world. Connected machines and objects in the commercial world allow a fourth industrial revolution, taking the Internet of Things to the next level beyond the public domain, the industrial Internet of Things. Energy, transport, buildings and infrastructure and manufacturing environments are all increasingly connected. For the uninitiated, it may come as a surprise to hear that in the US, the firm Concrete Sensors has created a device that can sit inside the concrete itself and provide data on the material's condition. We're talking truly groundbreaking connectivity here. But if one thing can prevent the industrial internet of things from transforming the way we live and work, it'll be a breakdown in security. And not just a malicious attack, it could be a breakdown in the connectivity, technical or human error. And in today's podcast, we'll be looking at cybersecurity and the ways to safeguard networks, devices, and in the end, our own economy and infrastructure, increasingly underpinned by the Internet of Things. So, welcome to the Global Safety Podcast from Lloyd's Register Foundation, the charity with the aim of protecting the safety of life and property. To shed light and offer plenty of wisdom, I'm joined by a fantastic panel of experts. First of all, Sadie Creese is a professor of cybersecurity in the Department of Computer Science at Oxford, and she was founding director of what's become Cybersecurity Oxford, and is also an advisor on Cyber for the World Economic Forum, aka Davos. Next up is Robert Hannigan. Robert was director general of GCHQ, the UK's intelligence and security agency from 2014 to 2017. He also set up the National Cyber Security Centre in 2016. Robert, in a sentence, can you tell us what the National Cyber Security Centre actually does? Well, it aims to
1: make the UK the safest possible place to live and do business online for individuals and companies and organisations. Does that by bringing together expertise from government, private sector and academia.
0: And Roland Johnson founded Netitude in 2003 to provide cyber and risk consultancy worldwide. Roland's award-winning company is now the cybersecurity division of the Lloyds Register Group. And finally, Ruth Bumfrey, Director of Research at Lloyd's Register Foundation. Previously, Ruth was the first head of Earth Observation at the UK Space Agency. What a panel. Welcome to everybody. And as many of you may have guessed out there, we are on Zoom today. Sadly, not face to face. That time will come, we all hope. So first, a quick question to you all and a snappy response would be great to get us all going. We're all aware to some extent of existing cyber threats. To what extent will the internet of things open up a new frontier? Sadie?
2: Well what's different about the internet of things is scale, pace and the general dynamics. We're talking about many more devices, we're talking about much more data, we're talking about very large data sets, um, very small computing Uh, devices that you wouldn't even be able to see with the naked eye, such as those you've already said embedded in concrete. And the consequence of that is the volume of data and insight and patterns that can be detected enable us to predict things about the environment, which may enable attackers to predict weaknesses in the way in which we conduct ourselves, and that will give them opportunity to attack. With any new kind of technology. We run the risk of introducing vulnerability into our infrastructures. Again, another opportunity um, for people to attack us. And of course, there's the complexity of the systems that we're creating, just makes it incredibly hard to maintain their operations in a way that we would consider safe as well as secure. And that in itself can lead to very big challenges in how we actually enable people to engage with those systems and operate those systems in a safe and secure way.
0: Robert, you're nodding there. Is this a a new battlefield for the people who want to defend us from cyber threats? Well, I think so,
1: because as Sadie says, it's about scale and complexity. And there comes a point where it's very difficult for any human being to oversee this Um, and that's a real challenge. So the human starts to get removed from this. Machines are talking to machines increasingly and systems are talking to systems. And that's um, a real challenge.
3: And uh, Roland. So, yeah, I, I guess if we think about the Internet of old, most of the information that was out there was generated by people that was were keying it in. And so one of the things that we're really seeing change with the Internet of Things is that that information is more driven by computers and objects generating data. So there might be sensors that collect collect a whole lot of information that ordinarily might not seem relevant or interesting. Maybe movement patterns, maybe machinery uh, and, and how they interoperate with one another. And I guess as that data grows in volume, so there is an increased opportunity for threat actors to want to go and target that data and potentially manipulate that data to have unintended consequences. So I think really what we're seeing with the Internet of Things is just massive amounts more in the generation of data from computers.
0: And Ruth, I guess this is why, we're, from Lloyd's point of view, we're, we're doing this, because you perceive an emerging threat here that uh, Lloyd's and the, and, and the, the foundation could, could help to address.
4: Yes, for me, um, the internet of things is all about that last word, it's the things. So in the past, the internet would be used to exchange information or ideas or, or concepts or pictures. But now, the internet is connecting to the arms and legs of big data, and those things can help us but they can harm us. So actually, by using the internet of things, if we think about safety, we need these objects around us to act in a safe manner. And that's the key thing for me, especially as, as these things are embedded into industrial systems, that, that those things need to keep us safe and they need to be kept safe. So the Internet that, that that we are trying to protect, the, the systems that we're trying to protect, are stopping those things from harming us.
0: Well, let's just develop a little bit the Internet of Things. So I want to make sure as a foundation fact, if you like, Springwall, people understand this. Roland, when we talk about the Internet of, of Things and the possible threats, you know, the, the sort of cliches are that, you know, President Putin is going to turn off my fridge or, or, or some cyber actor is going to drive my electric car into, into the central reservation. I mean, but take us beyond that. I think one of the challenges
3: is, is that people don't really truly understand the amount of data that is being generated. So they'll have an idea of the the, the data that they are generating. So if you inf- enter information into a website, that's in their consciousness. If they put things onto social media, again, that's into con- into their consciousness. It's the the unconscious data creation. I think potentially poses a bigger threat so where have you been what apps have you used who have you been close to what locations have you been close to now all of those things ordinarily don't sound like they're hugely exciting but if you can suddenly start gathering a picture of an individual suddenly that has huge amounts of relevance to all sorts of threat actors that want to try and impersonate you I think there's less of a risk of the stuff that people are consciously doing, but there's a huge amount of unconscious data generation every single day.
0: And of course, that data generation you've just been talking about has... Been discussed a lot recently in in a in a beneficial way, in a benevolent way, I should say, with regard to contact tracing with coronavirus, hasn't it? Sadie, though, can you just take us from the kind of internet of things a few more examples of what the industrial internet of things could mean, maybe with relation to transport, energy, buildings, manufacturing, etc.? So
2: the industrial internet of things is is the increased use of these kinds of computing technologies throughout what we would commonly discuss as our critical infrastructures. so to most people that means energy prov- uh, provision which of course matters at home at work in our cities it what it's what keeps things like the schools able to be attended um, other examples would be the future of manufacturing and of course we all use manufactured goods all the time um, other examples would be in our physical infrastructures and the constructions of buildings and built environments all around us.
0: Now, one of the areas I do know a little bit about is, is energy and especially uh, renewable energy in this smart uh, energy world where we have many more sources of energy generation and many more sources of energy consumption and that these need to talk to each other for this system to work rather than having one big power station and, and, and a few big users. Can anyone help me out in kind of maybe manufacturing? Give me a good example. Robert?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the benefits of the industrial Internet of Things are massive. Um, the first is safety uh, in manufacturing and in energy, and you pointed to the cement example. I mean, it's really useful to have data about the condition of Metal in a plane's wings, for example, or um, an oil rig's pipes or drilling mechanism. So what we'd call telemetry, stuff that is telling us how well is that performing? Is it about to break? And if you think of all the disasters that could have been averted over the last 50 years in the energy sector, for example, and in manufacturing, by something, or which, indeed
0: like, in roads, if you take the the Italian, you know, bridge collapse, yeah, exactly. over con- concrete and all that, exactly. sense, it might have helped, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. If something had told us this is about to break, um, we could have done something about it. So there's a massive safety benefit. Um, there's also a, an efficiency benefit. You know, if if we know more about journeys, for example, and demand for deliveries, look, like the pandemic at the moment, we're all getting stuff delivered. You can do that much more efficiently, and most. Delivery companies are already doing this using IoT. Um, And that, of course, then, as Sadie says, leads to uh, a a green benefit because the more efficient we are, the less uh, carbon we're going to be producing. And there is a massive benefit for the environment.
4: Just to add into that, I think taking people out of the loop as well is a a huge safety benefit. So many um, of the Internet of Things... Uh, systems are robotic systems they 're there that help remote inspections they 're there that get underneath bridges or down sewage tunnels um, and they also can do things like fly airplanes for us and to take away the sort of risk of human error in in those systems. So what we want to do is to enable the safe growth of these kinds of systems to enable the safe development of the internet of things and I think safety and security are sometimes unhelpfully kept as two words, you know, safety and security, they're to the same thing, they're there to keep us safe. Um, And in German, there's a word sicherheit, which means both safety and security, and it changes the way you think about things. We don't need to think necessarily just about threats um, or just about accidents. The things go together. Sometimes you connect things and they make things unsafe. Sometimes they make them unsafe because somebody wants to harm you, and sometimes they make them unsafe because you've just connected the wrong two things, parts of a system.
3: Obviously, Lloyds Register has a strong heritage in the maritime sector, and we're beginning to see real opportunities for industrial IoT uh, on, on vessels. So there's a lot of talk about autonomous vessels, and uh, you know there are many organisations that are making big strides towards creating autonomous vessels in, in the coming years. Um, but we can see uh, industrial IoT systems on many vessels today that are making a really big impact. So. Historically, when a vessel was going from uh, one side of the world to another side of the world, you would have had people on board that would have been looking at weather maps, information about tides and currents, and they were making decisions based upon experience uh, and intuition and what they could see with their eyes. And I guess now vessels are able to consume information from live streaming uh, of, of weather conditions. And not only that, they can use that to try and chart passages that are going to be more fuel efficient. You can well imagine that the cost of navigating the Pacific Ocean is, is very expensive. And if you can find a pathway that is going to be less impacted by wind, is optimized based upon tide conditions, and you can really use data to, to drive uh, that vessel, there's a whole load of efficiencies that naturally will come. And so we're definitely seeing an, an increased number of operators looking at putting technology onto vessels that can consume information, that can then uh, navigate based upon that information, turn turbines up and engines down, et cetera, to try and be more fuel efficient. And I guess these are all indications of how technology is moving us in a direction that is, I guess, different to what we've ever seen historically.
0: Yeah, well, I'm intrigued... By this development, you're you're talking a lot about autonomy. You're talking about giving a sort of greater role to this the the machine learning here. And we've become used to algorithms in our digital lives, knowing our shopping habits, political leanings, even or entertainment preferences. And in many ways, it was what makes the internet of screens, if you like, so user friendly. But it can also be dumb rather than smart, occasionally intrusive, and frequently make us feel uneasy. And I have to say. You know, Ruth's uh, remarks a moment ago certainly remind a pop culture person like me of, uh, you know, Terminator 2, The Matrix and perhaps more recently Ex Machina when machines go bad. Um, Robert, is is there a sort of danger, a a trust threat here almost? Leave aside the kind of outside actors. If we don't trust it, if we're not happy with it, that's a threat in itself, isn't
1: it, Robert? I think that's true. And it sort of sits almost above cybersecurity. And there's a lot of work going on about the ethical... Um, decisions behind creating new algorithms and behind the whole artificial intelligence uh, industry. How do we ensure that the computers that will be making the decisions in the future for us and learning as they go along uh, are doing that in a way that doesn't make us feel uneasy? Because you're basically right that if we don't
0: trust the system, we're not going to use it. Uh, Ruth mentioned removing humans and that's always a phrase that kind of slightly raises the hairs on the back of my neck. What do you think about this, Sadie?
2: Well, as Robert says, there's a huge body of work exploring um, how we can underpin trust in uh, deep machine learning, which is um, currently the approach that we're taking as an international community to making these decisions within these systems... And in particular, how we can explain the basis of those decisions. Because, of course, we don't live in a utopia. There's opportunity to maliciously affect the decision-making of these algorithms. But there's also a challenge around the complexity and just understanding how they're arriving at their decisions. And they're both different challenges that we will have to face. But there's, it's undoubted, isn't it, that these, these technologies will be there and so the truth of the matter is they will introduce new risk into these industrial iot environments and the body of work that's going on around the world to really understand how you would go about verifying the integrity um, verifying the absence of bias um, explaining the basis of decisions just to think about humans and nature versus nurture (laughs) that we have to start from somewhere. And so what we do is we initially train on data sets and from there we evolve or the algorithm evolves its perception of the environment based upon all of these data points. How that happens at Evolution, you can bias it just based on the training data sets alone and there will be a market for those too. And so when we think about safety and security and, the, and some of the bigger challenges and how you build trust, we're talking about building trust in the foundation part, as well as the way in which it learns and forms new views upon which decisions will be made moving forward.
0: Uh, Sadie just said there it will introduce new risks. At the same time, we've heard there's an opportunity to make our systems and our lives safer. How do we make sure we get more of one and and less of the other, Roland?
3: Awareness of what data is being captured and utilised. And I think one of the challenges is often we're in the dark. And I think what we are struggling with at the moment is that some of the technology companies are not quite as open and transparent about the data that they're capturing and how that data could be used and so when it is used in a way that we weren't expecting that makes us distrust them and that in its own right is, is, a, is a threat to us wanting to use the data or use the system or the iot or whatever it might be.
2: Sometimes I think people can ...view um, individual privacy as something that's entirely separate to, for example, industrial control systems and in the IoT. But they're connected on the human layer. There was a very famous attack many years ago called Stuxnet. What it did is it undermined the integrity of some uh, devices in a uranium enrichment facility. What they did is they changed the information that was being shown to the human beings that were monitoring that facility... So where they would be looking for telemetry that would tell them everything's okay, and normally if one of these turbines had a fault, then that screen would say there's a fault, you need to go and investigate. These cyber attackers changed the code on those screens so that when things started to go wrong, the human beings that were monitoring the systems were still being told there was no problem. And that's an example of quite a common way in which we manage these kinds of industrial environments. We often put a human in the loop to watch over the systems. So if we can just imagine the Internet of Things as it rolls out and the kinds of technologies we're all discussing, like automatic decision-making, computer-computer interaction, we're already planning to take the human monitor out of the loop. And so what we're all really observing and discussing, are we not, that somehow we need to do that in a way that still enables some kind of oversight, given that we've already observed cyber attacks that are directly aimed at trying to compromise our ability to have oversight. And so we have some challenges. We want the benefits of these technologies in the world, but we really need to think about how we're actually going to oversee the integrity of these systems so that we do deliver safe environments.
0: Okay, well, let's move into the area of kind of potential state threats here, because it's one of the headline grabbers. In the UK, we're probably quite lucky in that we haven't really felt the full force of a big state-based cyber attack. Not so lucky in Estonia. Famously, in 2007, their banking system went down and that grew into an assault on the whole infrastructure. Colonel Jack Torian is director of NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence, and he remembers the attack well.
5: It was a new and invisible battlefield. 2007, Estonia got cyber-attacked. Our technicians, our CERT, did a really good job. The higher you get, the more confusing it got. Uh, Political level, uh, what is going on, people don't know, it's the first time. And uh, as I've been told by the high level of state leadership in Estonia, when they went to Brussels to NATO HQ and told allies Estonia is under attack, the first response was to switch on TV to BBC, CNN, say, well, where is the tanks, where is the aircraft, what do you mean attacked? Uh, So the thought of uh, cyber domain being used to attack nation in a politically motivated way it wasn't there and it it launched several political policy initiatives since 2007 uh, the cases of cyber being used in a politically motivated way uh, has uh, gone up increasingly as well
0: that was colonel jack tarian speaking at an international cyber security conference in estonia last year Well, since that cyber attack on Estonia in 2007, we've seen further high profile attacks on Iran's nuclear infrastructure, private companies such as Jeep, oil and gas companies, logistics firms, and even national power grids. Well, I suppose this is one of the key questions. Would the industrial internet of things be a target for state-sponsored cyber attack? And how can it be secured? Definitely one for you to kick off with, Robert.
1: Well, I think it's already happening. And we saw an example just a couple of weeks ago well-publicized of uh, an Iranian attack on Israeli uh, water purification plant and an Israeli, apparent Israeli response against a port um, infrastructure in Iran. So neither country has really denied this. And I think it's a very interesting example of how um, critical infrastructure can be used to exert pressure and to pursue political campaigns. And Estonia was the first very public example that other things had gone on in private, but uh, it suddenly hit the headlines. Maybe worth saying that Estonia did a great job afterwards, and I think their response was not to shut off the digital world. Uh, It was actually to double down. They're probably the most digitally enabled governments uh, in Europe. But they did some some impressive things like backing up all their data in another country so that they can effectively run the whole thing uh, from elsewhere and of course, they've invested a lot of money in cybersecurity and they've raised awareness in the population amongst their companies. So they've shown that it can be done.
0: Would I be right in describing these attacks, perhaps not the Estonia one, but the others, as sort of skirmishes rather than all-out assaults on a country? Or do they kind of really threaten the the viability of that society? Or or could we be moving in that direction, Robert?
1: Well, I think we're moving in that direction, and it may happen by accident, um, particularly given the interconnectedness of, of systems. But if you think of a couple of real examples, so Russia switched off domestic power in parts of Ukraine three years ago as part of a political campaign against the Ukrainians. Um, the ransomware attacks, one of which was aimed at Ukraine, got out of control and ended up disabling manufacturing right across europe and Our own parts of our own NHS were hit you 'll remember by one of those ransomware attacks, which was state in origin uh, i 'm sure that wasn 't the intended target, but it 's a nice illustration of what we 're talking about is that it 's very hard to know where your attack will end up and the interconnectedness of uh, the future IoT is going to make that even bigger threat, and that's the point at which the systemic meltdown that you're hinting at could happen.
0: Well, I want to bring get everyone a, a chance to come in here. So, so Ruth, uh, is this something that you know very much preoccupies you? One of the key, the heart threat. Um,
4: yes, it does. It, it's about resilience. So, what we're seeing is that in all aspects of life, we're We're acting at a global level and at an interconnected level. And the Internet of Things is an exemplifier of that. Um, Interesting as as well, COVID-19 is an exemplifier of that. It's about how we connect to each other, about how quickly um, connections can be made and about the harm that can come from those kind of connections if we don't understand them and don't have the ability to shut them down when we need to. And so I think resilience is a key concept here for security and safety in the Internet of Things, that we need to have the right sort of tools and the right kind of awareness to shut off the right bits. I don't think this is all about stopping things going wrong. It's about accepting that things will go wrong and knowing how to respond to them effectively and quickly when they do.
3: One of the things that we're really seeing is that um, there's an increase need for organizations to do some form of cyber simulation to try and understand first of all what does that threat look like what what threat actors are there are you know is that a geopolitical threat actor or is it somebody that is an organized crime unit what kind of things do they want to go after and if if an asset or a data set could be compromised what kind of impact would that have now historically if you were to go back a number of years ago those types of war games or simulations as we might describe them were were agnostic to industry and so as a result you would have found red teaming exercises being conducted against uh, parts of critical national infrastructure in a fairly consistent manner. But of course as we see more and more technology enabled within systems so those simulations need to evolve. So now you have some very very specific types of activities uh, being simulated within the aviation sector, within the financial services sector, within the energy production uh, sector, to try and understand, you know what are the different threat actors targeting those systems? What is it that they would want to do? If they could disrupt, what would the impact be our knowledge and understanding of that is still evolving but it's definitely a lot better today than it would have been maybe 4 or 5 it's, years ago
0: is this a way of kind of countries attacking one another stealthily if you see what i mean without actually putting troops on the ground and without having kind of that level of quite literally offensiveness they almost think they can get away with a a cyber attack in a way that they couldn't with a a physical you know bombs and boots attack
1: I think that's a really good point so the the attraction for states of offensive cyber capabilities is they're just below the threshold of actual war or conflict Um, the problem with that is that it's very easy to miscalculate and at almost any moment you could tip over into conflict if you take an example Um, of actually of the North Korean inspired ransomware that um, ended up disabling part of the NHS here uh, three years ago. Imagine that had happened in the US and that the healthcare system had been disrupted to the point where people died. The pressure on a government to respond and respond pretty aggressively would be huge. So it's very easy for states to miscalculate and almost certainly in the future a conflict will come out of a miscalculation rather than somebody setting out to uh, create a war out of cyber.
0: But threats can come from private companies, organised crime, hackers with a grudge, mischievous nerds, and, quite importantly, accidents. In a moment, we'll get into these, but first, to help us out with the nature of many cyber attacks, here's Jason Nurse from the University of Kent School of Computing.
6: For me, a cyber threat is basically an, an actor Particularly that tries to conduct um, some forms of threat using uh, digital or electronic systems. A cyber attack is basically the actual action that's perpetrated by, let's say, a cyber attack uh, by threat actor. It's really interesting to, to see that there's kind of a variety of different ways that cyber attacks can manifest. Uh, for some for some organizations, it can be systems being inaccessible or dumb. So for example, ransomware, which is probably one of the most popular attacks now, is really all about encrypting um, individual systems so that it can't be accessed until the individuals pay some ransom. I mean, and this is exactly what happened with the NHS. You know, people went in, people started to switch on computers, and computers just would not turn on. They wouldn't uh, allow individuals to access very, very important data, very, very important services, and the same thing will happen in a company or even, you know, in, in a home. You know, Mom and dad try to turn on the computer to, you know, go on Facebook or, or whatever they want to do. And the computer simply, you know, props up a message saying cannot assess your data unless you pay this amount of money, usually in uh, Bitcoin or some form of cryptocurrency. Idea there is that it can't be traced. I think these days is actually one of the big pushes for some cyber attacks, especially on uh, home infrastructures or, or businesses, is really all about money. Companies can't function without their data. They can't function without their services you stop them from functioning, that's a big problem for them. So they're more likely to pay. But ransomware is kind of one of the, one of the popular ones and that's popular one I probably should mention is phishing. You know, you receive an email that claims to be some, from someone else, someone that maybe you know, or someone that you, you, you would trust. And you, maybe you enter some credentials or you click on a link and you visit the wrong site. Maybe you download the wrong file. Maybe you enter a, a username and password into a, a fake site. And then from there, the person has your credentials or they have your files or they've downloaded malware or your computer, or it could even be ransomware phishing and um, ransomware. the two of the most popular forms of attack now, and they're extremely successful. Sadie,
0: I was wondering, does that have relevance when we're talking to the industrial internet of things? It could be lots of different, you know, smaller companies could be a a victim from this. And and also, who's doing it? Is it kind of money-making criminals? Can it be kind of other people with a grudge, other agendas?
2: Historically, what we have seen is that once weapons get used they become less valuable because the the cyber weapon that you've not seen before is the hardest one to defend against i would say you would expect to see all the same kinds of threat actors that we have seen for the last 10 20 beyond years also operating in the industrial internet of things and the kinds of attacks we will face will be um, partly defined by the level of harm that can be created um, from their use. And that will relate to the um, incentive to an attacker, whether that's monetization or political motivation, or I think somebody has already mentioned the disgruntled employee, and it will continue to evolve. And so I guess the challenge that we are facing in the um, IOT is that our current controls that we put in place to try and slow this down or to disincentivize someone from attacking these systems because it would just be so costly, it would take so much of their brain power or financial dollars to develop the weaponry to even find the way in. Sometimes we can make that so costly that it's a form of defense because they'll go after other targets. And all of those strategies are going to play out. And as we've all observed so far in this podcast, humans are within that system. And so we are both a solution and also an attack surface.
0: Well, I want to turn to Ruth Bumphrey now, because in her position as uh, uh, head of uh, research for the Lloyds Register Foundation on this kind of thing, you very much were the driving force behind a a review, a, a push for a foresight review into cybersecurity. Why did you think there was such a need for this, Ruth?
4: I think Sadie just used the expression humans as an attack surface, which scares the bejesus out of me. And I think we need to sort of democratise the way we talk about anything technical. And what I need is to be able to ask stupid questions. I need to be able to get um, technical information and advice in ways that make sense to me and the kind of decisions that I have to make. And that's what the Foresight Reviews are supposed to help us do. They, they put things into plain English and provide um, accessible Um, knowledge about a subject which can be very complex and that we might need to plan for. I'd like us to feel comfortable in this environment, but to know what to do when something goes wrong and to understand how to keep ourselves safe. The second area, which I think is more pressing in this industrial Internet of Things, is about corporates and about supply chains. And I sit on a few boards of companies and I haven't had any training in, in what to do if we get a ransomware attack or a phishing attempt. I don't know, actually, you know, people in the companies, I don't know how much training they've had, and I don't know the consequences for those companies. And that's where I think we've got some real vulnerabilities in our system that are in industries, um, are are delivering these critical infrastructures that we all need to live, you know, the water, the food, the energy, the transportation a lot of them are being delivered through the private sector and at companies of vastly different scales from one man bands, small SMEs, um, right the way up to massive global corporates. And I think the level of understanding and literacy in the boardrooms of all those companies is very low. That's where the Foresight Review comes in. It's about getting a conversation going. It's about not scaring people, but just raising awareness, um, giving people some simple tools, some simple questions to ask. So you can ask your dumb questions without feeling that dumb.
0: I guess whilst you don't want to scare us, it's important for the future security of this system for us to be uh, prepared rather than ignorant. What do you think, Ron? Absolutely. I mean, back
3: to my comment about doing simulations. Try and find out where your vulnerabilities are. Is it your technology? Is it your supply chain? Is it your people? Is it a combination of all of those things? Once you've understood where are your weaknesses, how long did it take for you to detect it and then respond? And I think if, the, if more organisations were to do that, it, it won't necessarily make them uh, secure overnight, but it'll give them a roadmap.
0: As I say, let's move on to, to governance. And, and, Robert, should there be an international code of practice to safeguard the industrial internet of things? Should we have some of acknowledged kite mark? Tricky when the internet knows no boundaries?
1: I think the chances of any international agreement are pretty slim at the moment on on perhaps anything, but certainly on this. Uh, But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I think it will be a long haul, and even the process of discussing what those standards should be is, is worth having.
0: And what would be the kind of pushback? What's the negative side that I haven't seen of people saying, no, we don't want these standards? Would it be considered to be anti-competitive or restricting entrepreneurialism or or what would be the argument? Um, The
1: biggest pushback from manufacturers certainly is that um, there isn't a level playing field here. So a device that is manufactured without any security built in... um, is going to be much, much cheaper than one that has security built in. So um, unless everybody has to do this through regulation, as you say, or through international agreement, it's quite hard to incentivize this.
0: We've brushed on skills, but I wanted to sort of develop it a bit more. Sadie, should all CEOs be coming through your doors at Oxford University for a little bit of training on industrial
2: cybersecurity? If I can turn it around slightly, I, I find it incredible to imagine a future 10, 15 years out, where the leaders of our, our businesses and um, the deliverers of our critical national infrastructures uh, don't have cyber literacy. There is absolutely no way that this threat is going away. There's every sign that it will continue to grow. To my mind, cyber literacy should be as fundamental as financial literacy.
0: Nods all round on the Zoom screen for that one.
1: I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think the single biggest underlying problem in in all of this is lack of skills it's very hard for board members particularly maybe it's generational in some cases to understand cyber risk to ask the right questions and to know what measures will actually reduce that risk because understanding it's fine, but if you can't actually mitigate it, there's not much point in going through the process. So there's education to be done there, which is part of the purpose of this review. But at every level, uh, we need to upskill people on cyber. We need to increase the pipeline of people who are deep specialists. Not everybody needs to be a deep specialist, but we do need more of them. Giving people confidence to put a hand up and ask questions,
3: that's going to be helpful. Getting more people into schools to do GCSEs, into STEM uh, subjects, into computer science, trying to get more females and more diversity into free, all of that will help. Educating people that historically maybe went into careers into electrical engineering or manufacturing engineering and saying, actually, you
0: know what, cyber is relevant, let's cross-train you as well, and at the top of our organisations as well. Something which isn't a solution but could be a very important sticking plaster could be insurance. Is this an area where insurance is going to come in? It's an area which a number of
1: governments are on to. So the recent uh, commission report in the US, which they may get implemented, suggests there should be liability, particularly in the IoT area, um, for developers. And I think there's some big talk of it in the European Union as well. So I think we're moving in that direction. What insurers are really worried about is systemic risk. Um, we've seen in the pandemic this is an almost uninsurable event. Uh, what's the cyber equivalent of that? And there's been a lot of modelling of you know what does a, a, a cyber systemic meltdown look like and is it really insurable? So at that level, it's a problem. At the ground level, I think insurance has got a big role to play in, in improving standards.
0: You brought up the Covid pandemic. We've talked a lot about the cyber war in the last year, but we didn't really talk about biosecurity. And look what happened. We got whacked by a virus so is cyber really the big threat that we're making it out to be?
2: It's big and it's significant. And I think the real reason why this foresight review matters is because it looks like we're going to face a significant step change in the potential for harm. So even though the threat is real and significant now, the Internet of Things and the Industrial Internet of Things is is going to bring about the potential for much larger degrees of harm. What do you think, Ruth?
4: We have to, I think, accept that these things are going to happen, just as the same way that we knew that a pandemic was going to happen. It wasn't a "what if a pandemic happens." It was it is going to happen. We should accept that there will be a large scale disruption that will have cascading consequences across international boundaries into systems which we our lives depend on like our water system our heating our light our power our food systems this will happen what we need to do is prepare ourselves for those and think how ready will our governments be when that happens and and really think of it in the same way so i think there's a good parallel and some lessons to be learned from right now
0: and Robert, as governments have a tendency to sort of tool up for the last crisis, do you think the danger here is that they might end up putting all their effort now into biosecurity and run down cybersecurity? And how damaging could that be? Yes, it's always hard
1: for governments because they think in four year cycles, really. And if you think of the pandemic, well, officially, the UK government and lots of governments have said this for over 10 years, this has been the top threat to the nation. Um, but not enough has been done. And it's hard to get people to focus on those high impact, but maybe slightly lower probability in the next four years' risks. And cyber falls into that. Um, But as Sadie says, we're about to enter a new world where all this is accelerated. I think you're right in your question that we cannot overplay the threat. But uh, I also agree with Roland that if you just look at what's happening every day, the sheer volume and growing sophistication of cyber attacks against companies and fraud against individuals, it's something that we, we absolutely have to worry about. And there are things we can do. So this isn't some, something where we should despair. We can take measures to improve our security and to make sure our recovery will be better when things go
0: wrong. So um, there is hope. What I've gleaned from this conversation is that what we can all do something about is skills. It's about preparedness and investment and accessibility. So this doesn't become an area that the common man or woman can't understand or access. If we bring all those things together together, there is a chance of keeping our industrial Internet of Things delivering for us and remain secure. So thank you very much indeed to my guests Robert Hannigan, Roland Johnson, Ruth Bumfrey and Sadie Creese. And thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with our next edition that will be focusing on dealing with future pandemics in the light, of course, of the current COVID-19 crisis. the global safety podcast subscribe to be sure you don't miss an episode